This is Hacker Public Radio, episode 3007 for Tuesday, the 11th of February 2020. Today's show is entitled Photography 101. It is hosted by Paul Quirk and is about 24 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is, I tell you everything I know about the basics of photography. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Hello, good listener of Hacker Public Radio. Paul Quirk here with my new podcast series, Made for Hacker Public Radio. This episode is entitled, Photography 101. And in this episode, I will share with you everything I know about the basics of photography. I've owned a camera for a bit longer than I've owned a computer. My first computer was the Commodore VIC-20. And a year before that, I got my first camera, which was the Pentax K1000. These were Christmas gifts to me from my parents. I got my VIC-20 in 1984 when the price of the computer bundled with the tape drive fell to $99. The Pentax was a used camera my father bought from his sister when she decided she preferred a simpler, more compact camera. It came with a bag, a flash, a 28mm lens, and a 50mm lens. My father needed the 50mm lens for his own Pentax as well as the flash after his own fell in a river, and so my gift was the K1000 with the 28mm lens. At this time, I would have been around 12 years old or so, and my father was big into black and white photography at the time, developing his own film and making his own prints in his darkroom, which was also our laundry room. I really felt as though I bonded with my father during those years, and I learned a lot from him. At this time, he was learning more about photography himself, as he took night school courses at the local community college, with the dream of starting up his own successful photography business as a plan B to escape his terrible boss. To his credit, he managed to become very successful in this pursuit, and while conditions improved at his job when his boss got canned, there were years when he earned more from photography than his regular job. I was a tall, skinny kid and very insecure. Things like photography and computers were outlets for me to escape my crushing social awkwardness and simply enjoy life. I loved creating things. I was a Lego addict, but I also loved beautiful things like art and music. However, I also had an overwhelming desire to fit in. And so, when I started high school, I joined the photography club and proudly wore my Pentax to school. Kids were cruel. And soon some of my peers were questioning why I had such a camera and why I was bringing it to school. The stigma was that I must want to be some creepy guy taking pictures of young girls because that's the only reason why a young guy would want to walk around with an SLR camera all the time. Because of this, I dropped out of the camera club and hid my camera away, 
turning towards my Commodore computer as a safe way to express creativity through programming. I still enjoyed using my Pentax, but only when helping out my father with his business or when I was alone, in private, taking pictures of my cat or nature. It wasn't until I was married and the birth of my firstborn did I regain the confidence to go out and shoot in public with a 35mm SLR camera. Today, I regret the many opportunities I missed growing up as a teenager to capture those memories. Today, in the year 2020, I think it must be even harder for a guy to get into the art of photography. I see the term hipster getting thrown around as a pejorative to any guy who would take a picture with anything other than his cell phone. And to me, that's the real crime. There are people in this world who want to judge people they don't even know so they can appear hip, trendy, funny, and popular among their peers, with little care about who they hurt along the way. As such, this is the first lesson I'd like to share with everybody. These people don't really matter at all in your life. They will never be your friend, and if they were, they aren't the kind of friend that will help you to be the happy person living the best life that you can live. You should feel sorry for them, because if they can't crush your spirit, their own life loses its value. If you want to take beautiful images with a nice big camera, old or new, digital or film, you should do that. And anyone who might want to put you down deserves no more than your contempt and no less than your pity. At the same time, your cell phone probably has a manual mode, and this podcast will help you get the most out of that as well. And so, with that lesson out of the way, let's go make ourselves a cup of tea. Go ahead and hit pause, brew yourself a cup, then come back and we'll continue. just brewed myself a cup of my favorite tea. It's red rose orange pico with a little bit of milk and honey and it is very delicious, refreshing and relaxing. The piece you just heard is a small sample of a ragtime waltz called Pleasant Moments by Scott Joplin in 1909 and is in the public domain. This performance is licensed under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. A link will be made available in the show notes. So now I'm ready to get into the next lesson and that's the lesson about the relationship between aperture shutter speed, and ISO. The aperture refers to the size of the opening of the lens. In most cell phone cameras, this is fixed and cannot be changed, which is the main reason why you might wish to opt for a better camera. In a good camera, this is adjustable across a certain range called f-stops. Think of an f-stop as a measure of the size of the opening of a lens that light will pass through. My first lens had a range between f22 and f 3.5. The lower the number, the bigger the opening, and the more light you will let into the camera during a given period of time. It should be noted that lenses that feature lower numbers in their f-stop range are generally considered better quality, more desirable lenses, both with good cell phones and with good cameras. Now the shutter speed refers to how long light is allowed to enter the camera and is usually measured in fractions of a second. My first camera could go as fast as one one thousandth of a second and could go all the way 
to as long as I wanted with a setting known as bulb. On bulb, the shutter would stay open for as long as I held the shutter release button. And this is another feature that sets a good quality camera apart from a cheap camera or cell phone camera. Now my cell phone has a pretty good camera which has a shutter speed that ranges from 1 6,000th of a second all the way down to 32 seconds. It has a faster shutter than my first camera because it's an electronic shutter whereas my first camera had a mechanical shutter. This is the primary method of how cell phone cameras control exposure in varying light conditions. Now the ISO refers to how sensitive the sensor or film is to light. Back when I got my first camera we call this ASA. ASA stands for American Standards Association, but modern film sensors are labeled by the International Organization for Standards. There is no practical difference between the two as the scales are identical. The higher the number, the more sensitive the film or sensor is to light, the lower the number, the less sensitive it is. Most cell phones and other digital cameras have a range of ISOs that their sensor can use. For example, on manual mode, my cell phone ranges from ISO 100 to ISO 3200. The ISO generally doubles along the scale, representing a doubling of light sensitivity. For example, ISO 200 is twice as sensitive to light as ISO 100, and ISO 800 is four times more sensitive to light than ISO 100. A good DSLR can go well beyond ISO 3200, well into the tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands. Now there's a relationship between ISO, shutter speed, and f-stop. By opening the lens by one stop, you can increase the shutter speed by one stop and maintain the same amount of light exposure on your sensor or film. If you increase your ISO from 100 to 200, you can then either close down your lens by one stop or increase your shutter speed by one stop and also maintain the same exposure. This is a science of photography and has always been true all the way back to the beginning and is true whether you're shooting still photography or shooting video. Understanding this relationship is key to taking good photographs. An amateur might assume why not just go with the fastest ISO and leave it at that or open the lens all the way and leave it at that. Well, there are trade-offs, which I will explain. First, let's talk about the trade-offs with ISO. With film, as the ISO goes up, so does the light sensitivity of the film, but also so does the grain. Think of grain as the particles in the film that make up the picture. Back in the days of film, Kodachrome 25 with an ISO of 25 was considered virtually grainless. However, shooting below an ISO of 100 usually required the use of a tripod or expensive lenses. The 35mm format of film, or full frame as we call it, was desirable because the smaller formats, like the 110 format, would show more grain in the pictures. This is one of the reasons why many professionals went to the larger medium format for professional work, because there would be more negative for a given size of print reducing the grain effect for a given ISO. Now with digital photography, a higher ISO means there's more digital noise in the resulting picture. With a good quality full frame camera, this noise is usually not noticeable until up around 3200 ISO or so, which is where the tiny sensor in my cell phone tops out. Sometimes grain or noise is desirable to create an artistic effect. 
while at other times one might wish to have the clearest photograph possible. In the days of film photography, I would use ISO 100 to shoot outdoors and 400 to shoot indoors until Fuji came out with a fantastic 800 ISO film that closely matched most ISO 400s for grain and allowed me to shoot indoors without a flash as long as I used a good lens with a low f-stop number. For everyday use, ISO 200 provided a good balance between indoors and outdoors with acceptable grain. Today, with digital, I can change it on the fly, but generally, I try to shoot with as low an ISO as I can get away with. Next, let's talk about the trade-offs with shutter speed. A faster shutter speed will result in sharper pictures, but only if there's enough light. In the days of film cameras, and even today with modern digital SLRs with a mechanical shutter, shooting with a flash limits how fast you can shoot because beyond a certain speed, the shutter and the flash are no longer in sync, so part or even all of the picture will be dark. With my first camera, the shutter synced with the flash at 1 60th of a second. This improved with my second camera, the Pentax P3N, with a sync speed of 1 100th of a second. My Pentax digital SLR improved on this further with a sync of 1 160th of a second. With cameras that have electronic shutters, also known as mirrorless cameras, there is no limit to what you can sync a flash with, which is one of the reasons why mirrorless cameras have increased in popularity. However, thanks to advancements in technology, I can now shoot with a flash at speeds beyond 1 160th of a second with my Pentax Digital SLR with the use of a flash that has a feature known as high speed sync. Isn't technology wonderful? Intuitively, one realizes that since a slower shutter speed lets in more light, why not just use that all the time? The first thing to consider is that your pictures may turn out blurry if you shoot too slow, especially if you're holding the camera instead of using a tripod. You may want to create an artistic effect with blurring. You may have seen this effect used when a photographer shoots a highway at night and all of the headlights and taillights of the passing cars appear as lines of light streaming along the highway. They would have obviously used a tripod for such a shot and a very long exposure time, likely using a lower ISO and a smaller aperture for an even longer exposure. However, if you're photographing athletes in the middle of their performance, you might want to freeze the action and the only way to get that is with a very high shutter speed so the photographer might increase the ISO and decrease the f-stop number to compensate so they can do that. There's another factor with photography that affects both shutter speed and the effects you can create with your f-stop setting and that is the focal length of the lens. You have probably seen this number referred to in millimeters. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, my first camera came with two lenses, a 28mm and a 50mm. My first digital SLR came with a zoom lens with a focal length range of 18 to 55mm. This number determines how much of the scene you can fit in a frame, but also determines how slow of a shutter speed you can use and also determines how much can be in focus at a given f-stop. Generally speaking, the lower this number, the wider the angle of view, and the higher this number, the narrower your field of view gets. Once again, there are trade-offs. The lower the number, 
the more you can fit in the frame at a given distance from your subject, but this also increases the amount of distortions that occur to make this happen. This shouldn't be confused with film size. A full frame is considered to be 35mm, which is the size of film that a 35mm camera uses. A 35mm lens has a focal length of 35mm, but this is independent of measure compared to the size of frame or film you're using. In terms of focal length, a 50mm lens is considered to match what the human eye sees within a certain frame. Anything lower is considered wide-angle, and anything higher is considered telephoto. In reference to shutter speed, the general rule of thumb is that if you're shooting without a tripod or any other kind of stabilization, you want your shutter speed to be higher than your focal length. This meant that with my first camera, if I used my 50mm lens, I could shoot handheld at 1 60th of a second, but with my 28mm lens, I could shoot at 1 30th of a second. Modern image stabilization allows us to shoot handheld at shutter speeds lower than the focal length of a lens, but the rule still applies. A wide-angle lens can shoot at lower shutter speeds than can a telephoto lens. This is why you often see photographers with big telephoto lenses using a tripod, and also why wide-angle lenses are favored for cell phones and low-end cameras. Now, there's a more important element to consider when it comes to focal length, and that is the relationship to your f-stop. The result of this relationship is known as your depth of field. Your depth of field is what is used to describe how much is in focus in relation to its distance from the camera. If you've ever seen a portrait where the subject is in focus and the entire background is out of focus, that is because the depth of field is shallow. As you decrease your f-stop number, you increase the size of your aperture, but as a result, your depth of field becomes more shallow. However, the focal length of your lens also determines your depth of field. My 50mm lens at f3.5 has a shallower depth of field than does my 28mm lens at f3.5. My 135mm telephoto lens has an extremely shallow depth of field at f3.5. Now, there's a made-up word today that entered the lexicon in the late 90s by a journalist attempting to sell magazines, and that word is bokeh. Essentially, this word is used to describe how out of focus a background can be. What good bokeh really refers to is how out of focus the background really is. So all good bokeh is is a really shallow depth of field which you'll get with a decent telephoto lens with a wide aperture. I generally steer clear of words invented for marketing jargon, as these unnecessarily complicate and mystify the science of photography. It's difficult for a cell phone camera to naturally create a shallow depth of field, because they often make use of a wide-angle lens with a small aperture. These days, this can be accomplished quite well, though, with software algorithms but I still prefer using a telephoto lens to have a nice shallow depth of field whenever I want to throw the background out of focus in a portrait. At the other end of the spectrum, I prefer a good wide-angle lens for landscape photography where I want everything in focus. The final thing to consider, at least with digital photography, is the size of the sensor because this will affect the focal length of your lens. The focal length of a good quality lens is measured in 35mm terms. 
However, many digital cameras use a sensor that's smaller than a 35mm film frame. This means that when I use a traditional lens on my digital SLR, the image becomes cropped down, increasing the effective focal length by a factor of 1.5. This means that my 50mm lens behaves like a 75mm lens on my digital SLR, so if I want to maintain a similar focal length in terms of framing my pictures, I would use a 35mm focal length. In terms of using my old lenses, this seems like a waste, but in reality, things have simply shifted for the most part. For example, the newest film Pentax in my collection is an MZ6, which came with a nice and versatile 28-90mm zoom lens. My Pentax KX DSLR came with a 18-55mm to zoom lens, and when we do the math, this translates to an effective range of 27 to 82.5 millimeters, which is pretty close. Today, the Micro Four Thirds is a very popular format because the lenses can be a lot smaller and yet offer the same effective focal length. For example, my wife's Olympus OMD Mark II comes with a tiny interchangeable lens with a focal length of 14 to 42 millimeters. Now, Micro Four Thirds is smaller than the sensor that comes in most digital SLRs and is half the size of a full frame. So with a multiplication factor of two, the effective focal length is 28 to 84 millimeters. That was a lot of information and my cup is empty. I think it's time to brew another cup before we continue. a little more from that same ragtime waltz pleasant moments just some nice public domain creative commons music to drink tea by so now let's wrap things up the nice thing about the hobby of photography for a nerd like me is that it is built around long established standards things like shutter speed f-stop iso and focal length mean the same thing whether you're shooting with the latest iphone or a vintage hasselblad if you asked me what camera would be best for you I would say whatever camera you own. Some professional photographers have taken fantastic, breathtaking photographs using toy cameras that you might think are an insult to the craft. However, to the professional, photography isn't just about preserving moments of time. It's an art. Working with a camera that imposes limitations forces the professional to be more creative when it comes to composition and lighting. Some photographers only shoot in black and white, while others like to experiment with expired film stock. In art, I believe a good philosophy is to strip away anything that detracts from the art you are trying to create. Sometimes color is the distraction. At other times, it might be too much detail. At the extreme, a fine piece of art may be a simple red line painted on a sheet of white canvas. Now that might not be for you, and it certainly does nothing for me. But knowing how to frame a shot with intent is known as composition. If you're new to photography, you probably just want to know how to take a good picture. You have likely figured out how not to cut someone's head off, but now their nose is smack in the middle of the photo. 
Or maybe your landscape picture just didn't turn out as dramatic as you envisioned it. The secret to composition dates back to the late 1700s with paintings and the rule of thirds. The rule works like this. Imagine there are two horizontal lines placed at one-third and two-third across the picture and two vertical lines also placed at one-third and two-thirds creating a grid of nine equal blocks. Many cell phones and digital cameras offer to display this grid, often known as an assistive grid. The trick is to align your subject with these guidelines and their intersecting points. A horizon would be placed either on the upper or lower line, and features would be placed at points where these lines intersect. With portraits, you would want to place the eyes on a horizontal line and the body on a vertical line. This is the reason why some portraits where a person's head has been cut off can still look great. Once you've mastered this, you will find that you can experiment with various points of interest to create interesting perspectives. Well, that's it for Photography 101. Of course, there's still much to learn, like when you might want to overexpose or underexpose a photograph, how to use flashes effectively, and even how to take a proper light meter reading, but for now, I think that's enough to get anyone started into the hobby of photography. In fact, I could probably go on for weeks into the minutiae of the content of this podcast alone. Unfortunately, I just don't have the time and I'd really like to go out and take some pictures. I'm going to a 5440 concert and I decided to load a roll of brand new Kodak P3200T Max in a very old Pentax S1A that I inherited. If the pictures turn out, I will be posting them at my personal, non-commercial blog at pquirk.com. Feel free to stop by and drop me a note. Until next time, please drive safe and make sure to have fun. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.